Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, edge, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurize prepares you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 153 of the podcast, the topic is the rise of empathy. Our guest is Sophie Wade, who is an author. And in this conversation, we talk about how the topic of empathy got on the agenda again. We discuss key topics such as burnout, generations, new social contracts at work, and the hybrid work environment. We discuss empathy habits, team performance, organizational psychology, even brain science, and what all of this means for the future of work. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you're looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got episode categories, and you can find those at futurize.org slash episodes. They are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. And that'll help listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic that they are familiar with or want to go deeper in. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors, but to check them out, you need to go to futurize.org slash sponsors. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Sophie, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Tran. So here's the thing. You are an amazingly accomplished person, Oxford uh, and INSEAD and all of that stuff. But what caught my eye first was the Oxford uh, ice hockey team. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, fantastic sport. It was something that I started at uh, when I got to Oxford. And we actually were British champions in my, my final year, I have to say. Um, just fantastic. We, were, we used to practice at midnight. That was one of the crazy things about it. But... <laughs> Great. Sport. So what what brings a person who goes to to Oxford to learn to do these crazy things that take up so much energy? Were you always uh you know sort of torn between academics and sports or was it kind of a more recent discovery in there? I loved I was was always passionate about sport. I played a lot of lacrosse um at high school and and swimming and diving and stuff like that. And was doing some lacrosse at at Oxford. I did some rowing as well, but found Actually, found ice hockey because we just I just joined, and my best friend who was there as well she she got together with an old friend of ours, and off they were. And it was it happened at, at midnight. I was like, oh, well, I've got nothing much else to do, and so I went along <laughs> to the practice, and the rest is history. <laughs> practice at midnight. Well, that's. Um... That, that's the British for you, right? Never, it's, never well, waste a good hour. Well, it wasn't that. It was that we got the very last ice time. So there was, oh, the, I see. there was the Oxford City team, the men's team, and the women's team, then the Oxford men's university team, and then we got the very last slot. So I don't know exactly what the transition is here, but you uh, have become pretty passionate about 
empathy. Uh, that must also have a story. Well, that I was not able to discern from your public profile. <laughs> Can you tell me how you got into empathy? Um, I think many roots, actually. One of them is that I have lived in five different countries around the world. And in each of them, I had to... I had to assimilate. I had to try and work out what was going on and what would this new situation was was like and how these people were approaching life and work and and it was always very different. My the first place I was living and working was um actually Taiwan as part of my course because I studied Chinese at Oxford. And it was so different the culture was so different that I really had to step back and rethink that okay it's not that there are any sort of absolutes out there and everything that i know is just what i know and there's everything else can be different and so there never was any one way to work and you know i, I lived and worked in germany um in italy for a little bit um between england and france and now in, in the states for a long time and so very different work cultures sort of you, you know having different approaches to that but also i think not you know different cultural experiences have really helped me um you know empathize and and try and understand different people and what i realize also is that being in a culture which is a country which is not my own i need to assimilate um but i can also present who i want to present and that sort of given me freedom but it also means that i have to work hard to make sure that i am connecting with people and and trying to understand their perspective um in order that i can you know fit in and and succeed that's interesting i i've also spent a lot of time sort of straddling different cultures and it's not easy and it doesn't necessarily get easier the second or third time around i've found like you you obviously if you enjoy the experience you sort of maybe pick up some strategies but i find that it's quite difficult every time Yes, everybody's different and you also see similarities. For example, I really do see the similarities between the Chinese culture and the Italian culture. Um and it was really interesting actually when I, because of the, you know, the focus on food and the big family. When I was traveling around China, often people would say to me, oh they were, oh English which is yingguo, they'd say oh guizu and guizu means noble race and what they meant is a very long Uh, a race a culture which has a very very long history and that was their first way of connecting and so they were offering me immediately a point of cultural connection and that common ground is how you empathize you kind of yeah. go oh and you go oh so you're like you're all happy and but that was really interesting to see how people connect about different things and where you where you sort of offer those those points of commonality so that you can start to connect and understand but yes it does each time it takes you know maybe a couple of years <laughs> yeah you know that's funny you said that between the chinese and the italian culture uh mm. because one of the things that i've experienced is you know i walk around with my name which is kind of strange and then you get to italy and at least in the south they obsessed over the meaning of my name So Tron mm-hmm. means happy. Oh, right? really? <laughs> yeah, so well, which is exciting for them apparently, yeah. Yeah. you know. <laughs> And especially because Heim, the last part of my last n- name is actually it means home. So then right. so they intuited that it was Tron from Happy Town. But anyway, that's <laughs> it's a, so that's apparently that was a massive thing. Like I couldn't even You know, that was the first thing and it got us the first 10 minutes of conversation. I could not get around this whole thing that they wanted to talk about what my name meant. And and I guess in China as 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 well the meaning of uh of names and stuff is is quite mm. important. 
Uh, so that's interesting because I don't know in Scandinavia where I grew up, no one really cared to know what your name was. It was just more a way to, you know, just tell us what you call you, you know, don't let's not fuss about it. Well, it's interesting also because when I was growing up in England, there were so many people called Sophie. And so I was always Sophie Wade. And uh, coming to the States, there are very few Sophies. I mean, there are some Sophies now that are four or five years old, but it was very exciting to be Sophie. So new people knew, well, kind of like, oh, you're Sophie, you know, Sophie W. I'm like, what do you mean? It's just, it's me. It's me. I am Sophie. So I, I, I do focus on names where people have interesting or, or like un more unusual names. But so you're, you're the guy from Happy Town, huh? <laughs> well, but let's talk about you for a second, because <laughs> the, one of the reasons I brought this up is I was just reading the uh, advanced copy of your wonderful right. book. And okay. I noticed this striking little A before Sophie. So there's a story <laughs> there, too. So here's my theory, and it could be way out. But okay. this is another like pet peeve of mine. So my parents obviously couldn't change my last name, or they could have perhaps. So I was always picked last when they started with the last names, you know. <laughs> okay. But then even my first name starts with a T. So like well, what, whichever way I pushed this, you know, I always got picked last. So is this why you did this to get oh. ahead in the alphabet? <laughs> that would have been a, a actually not a bad idea um, because with W I was always last. No. Um, actually, it was so that it wasn't S-A-W, which would have been sore. So it was to avoid nicknames like that. So my parents always decided, wanted to call me Sophie, Sophie, you know, which is my middle name. Um, but the Alexandra came first. And I got the Greek names. My father had studied Greek. And so I got the Greek names. And my mother had studied Russian. And so my sister has the Russian names. But yes, we, we mo three of us have actually gone through by a middle name. So it's just a, it's just a middle name thing. <laughs> got it. All right, so the rise of empathy, that's a big yep. thing. You you have written a book called Empathy Works, uh, The Key to Competitive Advantage in the New Era of Work. Um, I must say you're not alone focusing on empathy these days, um, but there's something quite unique about your approach, and I wanted to to get to that. But let's let's start with maybe why do you think that a lot of people have started to talk about if not empathy, but start about to talk talk about these trends towards, um, I guess, taking the future of work as as, as a more of a li literal project. It's not, you know, a theoretical thing about how we should all change, but it's become very immediate. You have a, a very clear idea about why this is now so uh, so important. Yes. Well, the future of work, I mean, I've I've been willing it to arrive for a, a while, but things take longer. But the pandemic accelerated it, and it really arrived in 2020. So now is the time to, to be focused on it. And for me, the future of work is really, you know, driven by technology. There have been some societal changes which are relevant in sort of pushing for more changes. We have different family structures and we're living longer and that's delaying retirement and things like that. But most of it is about the technology that is changing so dramatically, how we do business, how we operate our businesses, the business models, and how we work. And so with all those digital changes um, and the process that changes with digitalization, which is to do with how the process changed, changes, it really means that we now as people who are using these much more sophisticated and intuitive tools rather than these huge machines and factories which we put houses around and then we sort of 
sat around and, and, and utilized the machines, we now have to be the ones who are driving the process. And therefore, and, and, and the work is much more complicated and much more fluid and much more networked. And so we need to be working much more closely together with in much more unpredictable circumstances. And that's where we need to understand each other as people more. So empathy really for me is just about human understanding and understanding each other so that we can collaborate across different disciplines with, you know, across the world and be effective because the problems we're solving are much more complicated. So let's uh, uh, take this back to the technologies just for a second, because mm -hmm. there's m many, many angles here. But on the technologies, which ones is it that you have in mind? The obvious one, perhaps, being sort of video conferencing technology, but are there some others that you think really have precipitated this uh, move towards towards empathy? All kinds of need for empathy. All, all, all kinds of technologies. I mean, we're we're much more interconnected. Things are happening much faster. We have social media channels. Before we could ignore our customers. I mean, we sort of decided what we, they needed, and and we produced it, and and you know, we're tired if they didn't like what we produced. Now, of course, they can answer back and tell us exactly what they think. And we can't wait just as we used to. We used to wait two or three years for a new Microsoft Windows project. Um, release. Now, you know, over the course of the two years of, of the pandemic, how many days or weeks Zoom has, has released a, a new little option? You kind of go, oh, look, we just, you know, and, and there isn't a huge release date. It's things are happening faster because as as we need more features and functionality, it's just being released and we're dealing with that. That's how the future of work works. It's a lot to do with um, not having, you know, sort of continuous product upgrades and, and, and cycles based on customer feedback and needs. Um, and so in all the different ways that we're doing that and how, for example, you know, Uber versus the, the you know, taxi services, it's really put looking at the customer in a different way and being able to focus on the customer of one. Now, if we focus on the customer of one, we need to really understand who that person is. And maybe we can, you know, even identify them walking down the street. And so who are they and what do they want? And how do we need to serve them, you know, you know, give them a car service or whatever it might be. But we really need to, to understand that person. And in understanding that person, we, you know, we honestly, at the same time, which I sort of focus on the customer journey, we can't, we can't just ignore the fact that we have people behind us who are trying to pr produce that uh, product or, or, or service. And how we're going to engage them in this more challenging work. So you mentioned a pandemic earlier, and that's why I, I guess I brought up video conferencing because mm -hmm. part of your book is interesting in the sense that you don't claim that empathy is just sort of a present skill that you need to be co-present in order to to use. You you think it's a a skill that we all have to use, even if we are on a video conference line or or using some some other technology. So you you can't get around this need for leveling and connecting with other people, even if, or perhaps especially if you are on a thin technology line, so to speak. How, how does that work for you? Very much so. And, you know, for me, the more information that you can have about when you're interacting with anybody, the better your the the better position you're in to understand what's going on with them. You can read people's emails or texts, and you know, for example, if your spouse or your parents are are annoyed at you just because of how they email or text you, you you know very very clearly. So if you were in a video call, the more information you have to be able to read someone's face or you know their body language—are they leaning in or not? Are they sort of turned away or looking up at the ceiling? 
or if they got their camera off, just had a bit a few d- debate with some of my, f- my friends from business school about, you know, the protocols of, of cameras being off. I'm not okay with that because you just need that in that information. And I was just about, to, I had a, <laughs> a call yesterday with a, with a with a friend of mine who, who does, um, which is, you know, does work for me as well. And she, you know, was having a bad hair day, didn't want to turn the camera on. I'm like, come on, you know, let's have a good conversation. I don't care what your hair looks like. That's so, funny. Yeah. But so, is, couldn't that become too much too? I've sort of uh, gotten uh, uh, quite good feedback in in settings where we say, hey, or, you know, if you don't want to, let's not turn on the camera because it can become very totalitarian too. It's like, okay, generally, yes, let's have a preference for the camera, but there it can become too much. And and as these cameras become better, like you know, I'm here on a, a pretty good camera. There are even better ones, and at some point, you can't even hide a pimple anymore. <laughs> So the question then would become like, like why does your employer need to see that level of detail? Like you haven't bought me, you know, hook and bait. That's, that's like requires, I would say double the salary if you're going to see. Well, hang on a second. If we were in the same company or let's just say you invited me into your office and sitting across the conference room interviewing me, you'd be able to see my pimples too. Now, the clarity of the camera might mean I could read all those books in the the background and have, you know, more of an understanding of of your, your, the, the situation that you're in right now. But we, when we're sitting in person, we have that level of detail. So I don't think I don't think that should be a problem. What I do think is a problem is how how undiscerning we are about meetings and being too too having our days too packed with meetings means we get burned out because you, one does have to concentrate more on a sort of smaller screen and you know try, trying to read people's um, energy and 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 faces and 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 things like that. So tr- I, I do think that it's very important to be much more intentional about who needs to be in what meeting and how to, you know, the protocols and have agendas and make sure there are outcomes. So, and, and making sure that people don't have to be in all, they know that there are notes taken so people don't feel, you know, excluded if they're not invited to a meeting, but it, they really can see it as being, um, you know, their time being, them sort of not, not wasting time to be in a meeting when they don't need to be. Tell me about the think, feel, and act steps. So I'm looking here at some at the review of your seven steps of success, and I'm quite fascinated. One of the things that I really like about your book is that you're not just sort of preaching about empathy, you're actually teaching empathy, or at least strategies that could, if you try some of these things over time, could develop, you know, which is very trendy these days, the new habits, right? Because it's ha- mm-hmm. everything is habits, atomic <laughs> habits, whatever habits. Habits is, sells books because it's psychology, right? But but right. you've got some of those habits going there. And and they're all uh, starts on, on a nice uh, alliteration with practice and prioritize. So you've got it all down there. But but t- tell, tell us a little bit about what, what went into those and, and what you think is really you know, it seems to be at the core of your book to, to kind of, yeah, I mean, set, set a strategy for yourself and and not just read about this and sort of intellectually understand it, but to internalize it and actually start to, uh, well, your first piece, practice it. Sure. Well, you know, I, I wanted to to really sort of explain where we are. And I think, you know, a big part of the book is actually creating a frame. A, presenting a framework to understanding how we can move forward in a, in a what I call a much more a human-centric system of, of, of moving forward in a technologically driven and, and pretty challenging environment. I think it's going to be very messy for a number of years as a result. 
And so, you know, that being able to connect with each other becomes incredibly important to support each other, to go through the mental, you know, uh, and, and stress that we are when we, as we're coming out of the pandemic. And so, but, but how do we do that? So setting the, the stage, understanding where we are, creating that framework, but then, but let's just, you know, let's just get real and be able to work out how to do that. And, you know, getting practical about it and sort of really giving some indications of these are different steps that you can take means it's not just about, you know, being kind and being nice, but also identifying, you know, where in sales, um, you know, in sales, sales, the sales process, can you, can you really lean into empathy and be connecting with someone and how can you do that or leadership? And so, you know, first of all, I did look at how to establish habits because some habits are easier to establish than others. And I know that very much from my own. I have like a, a project management book and it has all these habits, little circles to that I can, you know, check. And I'm still, some of them work, some of them don't. Um, and so I really looked at that to, to, to give some support in terms of how people create habits, but then what you can do and how to prioritize and having buddies and systems and, and sort of pairings so that you can be most successful. So I really, I, I wanted this to be useful and practical because I think empathy is incredibly needed mm. as we move, move forward. And I think we have so much other, so many other things to do, just giving some sort of really clear indicators, sort of, you know, and simple steps to take made the most sense to me in terms of how to get it out there and how to help people, not only for themselves, but also within their teams, because that's what's needed very much as well. So that teams can be working um, effectively, effectively together, particularly when, when there are, you know, cross silos across disciplines and, and, and allowing people to, quote, bring their whole selves to work, which is not that easy when we've been sort of, you know, two-dimensional cutouts of ourselves in the past. Yeah, that's a good point. And and I think you have some examples in the book of, of that because it's not just, you're not sort of just stating that this is a feel good, nice thing for like company culture to have empathy in, in a general sense. You, you're actually saying if you were a salesperson, this is this is what you should have been doing, you know, the whole the whole way along. And, and it, I think you have an example where you're pointing to some salesperson who said, well, why are you teaching me this? And, and this person didn't see the connection. And I think you were making a a point there of, of trying to relate that to the sales practice. So, so you have kind of lessons for very specific functions, business mm -hmm. functions, and and empathy kind of cuts across, and but it is very specifically relevant to 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 sales, uh, for example, especially I guess in a pandemic environment where you have to kind of invent online approaches and and still be uh, able to be empathetic in some way. Yes, I mean, I I have a, a a course on LinkedIn, which is Empathy for Sales Professionals, which came out March fourteenth, twenty twenty. It it could not have been better. Um, uh, uh, Good timing. Yeah. yeah, it couldn't have been better timing. Um, and by now, I think four hundred and seventy thousand people have taken it. So it really, and not just salespeople, customer service, business development, you know, all all across the the, the board, because I think it really is. When you're trying to deal with how to connect with people when this it's very uncertain and how to proceed and when to say something and when not to say something and when to just you know just let them talk um and and how to connect in in different ways um and what we are we're having us in partnerships and you know because of supply chain disruptions we're needing to collaborate more you know and, uh, up and down the supply chain so i think there's some very there are more ways that we need to have stronger external relationships 
Um, and so that's where, uh, on the sales side of things, empathy becomes that, you know, that much more important. And it has really changed because in the past, from what I understand from, from all the in really interesting conversations that I had with people when I was developing that course, um, you know, sales used to be very different. The, the power used to be in the hands of the, of the seller because the buyer had no information. Of course, now we have the internet. We can, we, we are so advanced in how far, how much we understand about a product or a service before we get to the point of connecting with someone um, on, you know, at the company that they now have to do. They have a much harder job now. But I have been really interested to see how um, sales executives have found that online sales, um, I think 63% of uh, executives, HubSpot did a, a, a survey, um, believe that online sales are more effective. And so that's going to be a big part of the future. So well, that surprised striking. me. Yeah. yeah. Well, it surprised you, but you seem to have been doing well with it. That's impressive. 450,000 people taking your, your LinkedIn course. How, how, mm -hmm. so that you've, take, you've made several courses. Uh, how has that experience been compared to kind of other ways that you're reaching out? I mean, you're writing books. I'm sure you, you do consulting. Uh, how does this uh, LinkedIn course experience, are you able to actually reach these people afterwards? Or do you build relationships with these, uh, well, not not all 450,000 perhaps, but some of them? Yes, I, sorry, I was mistaken. It was 400 ta have taken this course and 400, whatever, um, have taken the others in total. Um, um, yes, I do connect. Some, quite a number of people reach out to me about the course and um, have uh, are, are interested in, in more about my my work. I, I do have a, a podcast as well called Transforming Work, which is really trying to give visibility um, and share understanding from all the different areas of the of the future of work and and how this new new era of work is is cha changing our businesses and the, and the workplace um, to sort of you know elevate that. So that's another way that. I'm sort of sharing some of the understanding or, or insights that I have learned or have connecting with people who are doing some really, really interesting things, whether it's about upskilling or inclusion um, and the new styles of leadership. I think there are a lot, huge changes in terms of leadership and what that means. The different styles now are going from much more of a sort of commander to more of a coach. Yeah, that's true. I mean, by the way, on your podcast, don't you find, I certainly find that uh, having uh, accomplished guests such as yourself, it actually teaches me a lot. So it's not just providing a service for the community, but I found the experience of interviewing people for a podcast provides uh, very, very interesting data, uh, actually input for for my writings and thinking. And um, Shh, it's, you're right, don't tell people that. <laughs> You know, I sometimes wish I had started podcasting when I was 19 or something because, you know, the the amount of learning that, that oh, is available now. And if you huge. just start analyzing even other people's podcast notes, uh, in fact, I'm actually a little bit surprised that people still uh, give out transcripts because they're so valuable. They're, they're, you know, this is actually really valuable information. So, you know, joking aside, this is a treasure trove of, of research. If you are a qualitative researcher, that is, and you believe that you can gather evidence through talking to people i mean the last 10 years have been massive a huge and and you know and each person who has their company and they've started something up or they've been in a position to really get a lot of gather the benefit of a lot of different experiences so that they have synthesized those and then they're talking to you about them it's huge i mean it's it's 
very valuable understanding that that I gain. And that's what I want to both share and really enjoy absorbing myself for sure. Right. Well, You've given the secret away. I can't believe that. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I've been known to do that. So it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I guess when you have teachers as, as parents, you know, you, oh, kind of, you, you don't bury the lead. You're like, okay, <laughs> this is what I am going to say. Now I'm going to say it. And here I repeat it again. So you will remember. It. Okay. Yeah. So what about the future then? Because, you know, I think you kind of gave away the secret also that the future of work is is now, or at least what people have been talking about as the future of work, whatever the hashtag future of work is, is essentially we're talking about now, reality. The pandemic or other things made what was the future of work the reality now. Mm -hmm. This is what we're dealing with. So mm. what does that mean for the actual future of work? What, what Where are we heading when it comes to things that, haven't fully been shaken out by the pandemic or indeed by all these technologies, whether they be social media or video conferencing or any other sort of associated technology that's sort of panning out already. What is the next frontier? What is it that we should prepare to be adapting to in the next decade, perhaps? Uh, well, first, I, I would like to say that whilst the future of work is now, the now of work, most people aren't aren't here yet. <laughs> um, and it's going to be a messy few years working out what the new, I don't want to say the new normal, it's, it sounds so trite, but but the, where companies and organizations are uh, crafting the new, the new system that they can, that incorporates as a very highly digitalized, you new new um, new digital processes, new ways of working, um, incorporating hybrid models or whatever their new setup is. All of that will take time. You know, there are new, there truly are new rules of engagement, not just for for people these work arrangements, but 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 for the business and how that works. And it's going to continue evolving as technology changes or or your competitors' technology changes. So so that's going to take some time. What's ahead? What I do see ahead is, which is which is a ways out. Um, is really when we're when we're looking at the dynamics of business and work, it's much faster. It's much faster evolving. It is not going in linear directions or, or sort of you know it, it pivots quite quickly in different ways, and that kind of agility that or nimbleness that companies need to have means that the most likely form for companies to have is a sort of smaller a smaller uh, core base of full-time employees with many many more people in the extended um, freelancers, what's called the total extended talent pool, the total talent pool, which will include many more freelancers and part-time employees and and uh, you know long-term contractors and short-term contractors, so that the company can not be faced with either becoming you know completely uncompetitive or having to fire you know hire and fire people all the time. Now that there, that isn't necessarily a bad thing at all because once you have a, a sort of dynamic but stable setup where you have lots of of contractors who have uh, many companies that that they do regular business with, and there are many other forms, particularly in this country in the U.S., where you have you know if there were uh, something in between a ten ninety nine and a W two, 
Um, there is, you know, there has been a proposal for something was called the um, the independent worker, which was pr proposed as being something in between where you could get some benefits and you could, um, you had the right to uh, to. Uh, not kind of like unionized, but 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 just have some some sort of collective rights. Um, but it does require some laws and stuff to change so that contractors and freelancers can be set up and have some of the the supporting needs of being in that environment when they don't have um, when they are working by themselves or, or working much much smaller organizations. Um, so so I do see this a more stable setup where you have smaller companies with much bigger networked sort of overlapping and interwoven, um, you know, groups of people who are working in and for the company in different ways as the company seeks to navigate and, and operate in a, in a changing environment. It, that is a ways out, particularly because laws, some laws need to change. Um, but I think that will give, give more people more stability because the more each employer employee is beholden just to one company that is that is not a, a secure place for people to be and you know millennials and gen z are very aware that they have no job security whatsoever you know it's a paradox isn't it that in the olden days i guess you know one company was the ultimate job security because i don't know it, it was just looked upon as like you know you have your one safe employer but you're saying we're going into a future where the safest place to be is to have three to five different very strong relationships where you're essentially more than a consultant to each of them but you are mm -hmm. kind of selling your skills on a market it's a very very different reality the the worst situation is right now because we are in the between you know, in the 1950s, it was the organization and you you could be guaranteed a, a 30 or 40 year, um, uh, you know, sort of safe employment. And then, you know, you retired at the end and you, you know, you had the idea that you could, if you did all this, you know, long, hard hours that at some point you could stop working and, and, and retire. And, and that, that possibility isn't there anymore. You know, we, with longer lives, with much, with basically no job security, you know, young employees right now have have no possibility of that future where they can retire and have anything to retire on. So we need to create a different dynamic, and we need to move move towards that and find a a much more um, integrated and networked um, environment that is much more supportive of people who who have not had. We haven't had, you know, thirty week. Most people haven't had. You know, lifelong employment um, for at least a couple of decades. But so, tell me then to tie this back to your uh, book, Empathy mm -hmm. Works. Then, uh, because y you say on the back uh, cover that it's a resource both for sort of established and rising managers. Then, but you know, whether you are new to the labor market or you have to deal with being, uh, I guess, in charge of of a bunch of people sort of working for you, what does that make, what, what difference does that make in, in sort of, in ways of thinking about empathy? First of all, I think we are recognizing now more than ever because of the pandemic that each person is completely individual and managing them because, you know, when you're working from home and everybody is in their own environment, 
the differences between how people work best is becomes much more obvious. And, you know, you may be, you know, a morning person, I may be evening person. And so adapting schedules or and adapting how you manage people, some people just need a deadline and they're golden. Other people need a lot more check-ins, not that they're, there's any difference in how good an employee or how effective they are in producing results, but they just need different management. So being able to, to understand and empathize with each person what they're really good at, how to, to engage them, because we need people to be engaged. And if we're going to be retaining people, now the February numbers for, for the great resignation came out, they're even worse. So I, I think it was 48 million people. And I think, I can't remember what the difference is, but a couple of months ago, it was 1.7 jobs for every one employee. And it's, it's, it's worse now. So if we're going to engage people, if we're going to retain people, it's really trying to understand how, how they work best. And, and, you know, it sounds, I'm not trying to say you get things out, you know, to, to get more work out of them. But to, if you're if you're going to engage people and get them to a place where they're actually enjoying their work and and um, aligned with their strengths and their skills, you're going to have better results, and they're going to be much more productive and and enjoying their life too. I mean, sounds like a win win to me. <laughs> so, Sophie, you're making me feel more and more trendy because I've always had. <laughs> Had a project-based identity, so I always had these projects, but it, it wasn't always very cool, right? Because the the mantra for a while here, even for people my age, is you know you got to stick to what you're doing and you got to do like a you know you got to put in a decade or something. So that brings me to the question I have for you: What's what? What are some of your next projects? What What are you excited about? You've done so many things. You've written books. You you know for LinkedIn courses. What What fascinates you about the the next wave here? What What's in score uh, for you here? Uh, honestly, I I care so deeply about trying to bring more empathy to the workplace. I have been, I was under a rock for the whole of the last year. And, and it actually came up, empathy came up about five years ago as a solution for three different things. It was changing leadership and and how people, how they could connect. It was about the, the challenges or the, the a lot of miscommunication between generations because of, you know, they're, they're so entitled or, you know, they don't get it. And, um, and also the decentralized workforce, which was, you know, coming into the fore and, and growing, obviously not, not nearly like we've seen in the pandemic. And so empathy has been sort of rising since then. And, and this is, this is now when I brought it all together and then try to make it practical so people could do it. So this is, this is my passion and uh, my purpose really. So you're, sti I'm, you're sticking to your message. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I believe it through and through. I I and I go on about it a lot. So, <laughs> so Sophie, let's uh, let's uh, try to sort of characterize this uh, this phenomenon. Then, can you you know in like a a shorter statement try to explain what empathy uh, is for the workplace right now? If if someone just came in to this podcast right now and we just wanted to really understand in a nutshell what, what you're thinking around empathy. What is the core of your message? Empathy is about human understanding. Empathy literally is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and experiencing what they're going through, feeling what they're feeling. That's the thing, feel and act, and then doing something different as a result. So if you're a leader or if you're a team member, it's really trying to understand what's going on with the other person so that any interaction that you have can be more productive, whether you're in person or, you know, on a video call. It's listening to their voice. It's reading their emails differently. It's not making assumptions. It's withholding judgments um, and just improving every interaction and relationship that you have. So then here's my problem. What if I think I'm a person that 
isn't very good at those things. Let's say I'm a person who doesn't withhold my feelings. I'm actually very vocal right away. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I kind of know about myself. I might be somewhat abrasive and I'm very direct and uh, I don't read a room very well. Um, I, I mean, I could go on, but these are things that, <laughs> you know, people have told me that uh, okay. it could happen to me or they have, you know, certainly I have observed them in others. It's easier to observe in others. But uh, honestly, we are not all cut out for this workplace, are we? This is why you have a book, I guess, because, you know, we don't all come like this. We do, actually. Oh, but we just, do? Just to different degrees. Yes. There's a Dutch primatologist, Franz de Waal, who basically says it, this, is, this is second nature to human beings. This is, we all have this in order to understand each other, and it's the basis for all human relationships. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has great relationships, but you, you, in your personal life, you are using, you may not use it as much in your professional life because we just haven't, um, but it is where we are using it much more in our personal lives into our interactions with our, you know, kids or spouses or, or parents. You know, we are thinking, for example, let's just say you wanted to, when you were a kid, you wanted to go out, you wanted to pitch something. You, you know, you were looking at your mom's face and trying to work like, oh God, it, what, how did she respond to that? What am I going to do? What, what am I going to do it now? You know, I mean, we do learn. So it's leaning into the things that we understand and it's watching and listening. And if we don't get, and so, if one is prone to overreact, then, you know, empathy does start with you. It does start with you understanding more about yourself. And the fact that you you are telling me all these things that you've been told means that you have awareness about some of these things. And so it's, you know, watching other people and listening and asking. And if you're not sure, trying to judge, or it's not trying to judge, trying to understand what emotion someone's feeling. And if you're not quite sure, then ask to make sure you get it right. Because then you know, okay, he's either concentrating or he's indigestion or he's you know, got a problem with the project. Um, or maybe he's distracted because something you know, terrible is happening at home. But if I ask, then I can actually help support you in the project or just say, hey, look, do you want to take a time out and deal with whatever issue that is? And then we can have a much better interaction and you know, the project can move forward in the, most, in the, you know, in the smoothest way possible. So it, it's really just being a, you know, taking a little bit more time, as you said, reading other people um, and just trying to work out what the best way forward is. And then as you start to learn and see improvements in some of the interactions, um, then, you know, that really just sort of helps you, you're expanding your, your empathy skills. Well, Sophie, this uh, makes me as a futurist just come with one prediction, and that is if this message sinks in, I, I think not only you, but everybody who's in this business will sell a lot of books and courses because I think there's only two ways out of this, right? You either kind of ignore this trend and you sort of sail on your current skills or you actually have to sit down and, and really consider these, these types of lessons. Because I, I truly feel from reading your book that this is not just you're not just trying to nudge people forward. It is actually a pretty radical message, isn't it? I mean, this is not something you say it's innate and I hear that and you say, you know, we all have it in us, but I can't but read something fairly revolutionary in it, in that you're sort of saying, if you don't get on this train here, you, you're really out of sync with the workplace. And that's a, that's, you know, you, you could have said it differently, right? I mean, <laughs> I know you're trying to be upbeat here, but I'm just trying to force this a little bit to try to tell you that what you're saying actually is is revolutionary. It it is very challenging to some people. I hear you. Yes, and what 
I found, um, I actually tell a story in the book, uh, which happened to me. I gave a speech about empathy to about 500, mostly software developers. And at the end, uh, one guy came up to me um, and he was, I think he was German or somewhere. Um, and he was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't imagine the idea of empathizing with, with all my direct reports. I have 10 direct reports. I said, look, you know, you don't have to be really connecting with them emotionally every single time. But if you ask questions about their family and how they're doing, just just the questions and listening to their answers and even taking notes so that you remember if you, you know, and then just finding out what their, what their hobbies are, just making, you know, leaning into the relationships and, and showing that you care and you're thoughtful, that can be enough. You don't have to go all that way to con connect emotionally. So I think there are ways of showing you care and developing relationships which which really help uh, interactions improve and collaboration be more productive uh, that don't require the extent of of empathy that you know can be more challenging for many people for sure right I, because there's one thing that I thought about which is I think that there are, there's even the category of people and maybe I've been there myself who, we have the ability to relate, but for some reason, we think that relating or giving too much in the workplace relationship isn't appropriate because that kind of sharing could come back and bite you. In other words, you know, why why make friends in the workplace if you have the option to make them somewhere else? Because what if this, that, the other? You know, what if you give off, you know, give out too much information? And I think maybe that's a cultural thing. Uh, there certainly are uh, types of people that prefer to kind of have work be one sphere uh, and then you know social life be another isn't there a danger in your message that you're sort of preferencing one mode of behavior and that uh, the people who maybe are of the inclination that they want to they want to be empathetic people yes but they want to keep work sort of separate from their personal lives is there a way so in other words to be specific is there a way to be empathetic without uh, oversharing Yes, I think empathy is really, it's easier to empathize um, when you have more common understanding, when you can relate, when you have shared memories. Those don't have to be so deeply personal. And reading the other person, which is what empathy is all about, means that if you can see that someone's uncomfortable, like stop sharing. Like, you know, don't go any further. And it's going to be different for different people. I mean, I share very different aspects about myself with with one person versus another and and we 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 all do that really um so i think that is part of sort of understanding where where the balance is best kept i think you can share more um which is more professional information you could be connecting about you know aspects of the job that you love or different uh, you know connecting about a project it is it and when in in a in, a, in a, a company when you are making sure that you have time for the employees to connect and go on retreat together and have shared memories those don't have to be personal 
you know, sharing about your family or about, uh, you know, other things that you, that are sort of too intimate, but it can be just that, that you know, the company went, oh, went bowling together and oh my God, did you see John and he was crazy and he did, you know, amazing, you know, strikeout. You know, that's the kind of stuff which helps people connect. So it doesn't have to be super personal, but it does, shared memories are as good as, you know, or, or you know, the, you know, the, the latest, latest TV show that we went binged watch and, you know, we, you know, yeah. those are the type of things that can, can help. Thanks for that qualification. I think that's that's probably important. Um, either way, this has been very fascinating. I think that you are onto a topic which is not going to end with this book for sure. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing with uh, with my listeners the uh, messages that you've gleaned from your work so far. Well, I hope I wasn't oversharing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you, thank you so much for having me, Tron. And I love the fact that your name means happy. Um, but I really, really appreciate your time and for really reading my book very carefully. Appreciate that. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 153 of the Futurized podcast with host Tronarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Tron's products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in any or all of Tron's projects, check out his website, trondenham.com, which has links to his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. The topic in this podcast was the rise of empathy. And in this conversation, we talked about how the topic of empathy got on the agenda again, again and the key topics in the future of work. My takeaway is that empathy is one of those topics that rises to the agenda every now and then, but probably deserves to always be discussed, given that the future of work is one where we will need to be highly attuned to both humans and machines and might need to amp up our emotional repertoire and antenna to compete with both. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. And if you liked this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 124 on cultural agility, episode 113 on tech in tomorrow's learning organizations, or episode 93, orchestrating the freelance economy. You can access each episode by typing in futurized.org slash episode number. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. We are uh, easy to find on social media, Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube, and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.